as we continue in worship this time with the Word of God and turn to Joel chapter 2. Find Joel chapter 2 in your Bibles. If you need a Bible this morning, we have a, a pew Bible right in front of you. You can grab it and uh, turn to Joel chapter 2 as Pastor Bruce continues in his series. And Joel, turn to the Lord. In chapter 2, we're going to see the alarm sounds. I've told Pastor Bruce many times, one of my favorite things is when he goes through, preaches through a book, especially a book in the Old Testament. Last week was a great first week and looking forward to what we're going to hear from him and from God's word this morning. So follow along as I read Joel chapter 2 and the text is verses 1 through 17. Follow along as I read. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their, ha- their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for a battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge, like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for the alarm sound. We thank you for the opportunity for calling us to return to the Lord. Pray for Pastor Bruce, and we just thank you for his studies uh, through the weeks uh, in this book and in your word. And we pray that you would just give him boldness and courage to speak your word and that we would have open hearts and open minds. And Lord, we just thank you for your word and thank you that when you call, we can return to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to keep your Bibles open in the book of Joel, chapter 2. 
As we continue in our series, we began last Sunday, the alarm is sounding. It is going off. It is blaring. The sirens are going off. And this alarm is a matter of life and death here in Joel chapter 2. In September of 1939, Britain had just entered World War II. And that same month, London sounded its first air raid siren. Loud, harrowing alarms warned the people when danger was upon them. One year later, at the height of Germany's blitzkrieg, the sirens became a part of daily life. Night after night, the alarm sounded. Everything in London screeched to a halt while men and women and children ran for the nearest shelters. To ignore the sirens was to your own pearl as bombs began to drop from enemy airplanes. Now today, here in Kansas City, we are also very familiar with the sound of alarms. We, we understand the importance of sirens blaring across our city, especially during tornado season. And to ignore the sirens is to do so to your own pearl. In fact, it could be a matter of life and death. And Joel chapter 2 begins with the sounds of an alarm blaring across the city. The city of Zion now faces imminent danger. An army rises on the horizons. Its, its numbers are great. Its power is overwhelming. But more than that, this warrior king leading this army is undefeatable. And to the people's surprise, the Lord himself has turned his forces against Israel. The day of the Lord approaches. Now, the destruction of the locust plague was was unprecedented, as we saw in chapter 1, but it was nothing compared to God's coming judgment. And so Joel sounds the alarm. And yet, even in the face of this coming danger, Joel also summons the people to turn to the Lord. Based on past mercy, Joel now holds out hope that the Lord will again extend His mercy to those who turn to Him. Now, we understand that alarms or sirens serve a purpose. A siren before a tornado serves as a warning for the people to take seriously the coming tornado and to seek shelter. And that's what God is doing for us with the alarm here in Joel chapter 2. In fact, coming up on the screen behind me, what God is doing is He is calling us now through the prophet Joel, to take seriously the impact of his coming judgment, knowing that it can only be endured by turning to him with torn hearts. Now last Sunday, we saw in Joel chapter 1 that a, a locust plague had devastated the land. And as a result of this locust plague, the, the people are now very desperate. The locust plague devastated Israel's economy, their society, their their culture, even their religious system. And, And according to Joel, that locust plague, it was unprecedented. And the consequences were far reaching. Crops were destroyed. The fields were wrecked. The trees were stripped bare. Worship was disrupted. And gladness within the hearts of the people was now dried up. And just when you think it can't get any worse, Joel says that this locust plague is but a prelude to God's all-consuming judgment in Joel 1, verse 15, when he says, Alas for the day, 
For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. And so Joel now sounds the alarm on God's behalf. And by doing so, he is urging us to take seriously God's coming judgment, knowing that it can only be endured by turning to the Lord with torn hearts. We see this in the very first verse here in chapter 2, when God says through Joel, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And even though God has now promised judgment on his people for their continued sin, for their rebelliousness against God, the breaking of their covenant with God, he holds out this opportunity of hope and deliverance at the 11th hour when he declares here in verse 12, yet even now, Return to me with all your heart. So what do we make of this? What is the words of Joel here to the children of Israel, God's people in that day? What does it mean for us here in this day? How do we apply this passage here for our lives now? And I I think there's two principles that come out of this right from the text. Number one is on how we should respond to the sound of God's alarm, the first thing we need to do is to to tremble before the God who judges in righteousness. Notice again what Joel writes in verse 1. He says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land, what? Tremble. Why? For the day the Lord is coming, it is near. Now Zion is the city of Jerusalem. The temple was located in Zion, and God's anointed king ruled from Zion. In fact, Mount Zion became known then as God's holy mountain. It was the place where God's presence dwelled with God's people and where he ruled his people in holiness. Psalm 46.5 reminds us of this when it says, God is in the midst of Zion, she shall not be moved. But now here in Joel 2, the blast of the trumpet sounds. And all the inhabitants of the land are to tremble before the God who judges in righteousness. Now, the trumpet blast in the history of Israel uh, really had two functions, and it was to call people to, one, worship the Lord, and the other function was to call people for war or to prepare for war, to get ready for war. And in the case of war, the trumpet blast was sounded to warn the people that an enemy has now invaded the land and is on the rampage. But what is shocking about this trumpet blast is that it is God himself who is the one coming in judgment to fight against his people, Israel. And so if ever a trumpet blast should be sounded, it was now. The day of the Lord is near, Joel says. And so this first trumpet blast What it signals for us, just as it did in Joel's day, is that this is God's warning that judgment is coming. It's God's warning that that judgment is coming. Now, why would God sound the alarm of his coming judgment? And the answer is this. God warns us because he loves us. He warns us because he loves us. And so this trumpet blast is a, it's actually a sign of God's love for his people, even in the midst of their continued sin. Now that is astounding. And yet this is the, the steadfast love of God that he has for his people. 
in love. God warns His people that judgment is coming because of their sin. And yet at the same time, in mercy, God holds out the hope of deliverance from His righteous judgment, as we will see in a moment. But for now, we need to tremble at the sound of this first trumpet blast. For Joel says that the day of the Lord is near. And that begs the question, well, what is the day of the Lord? And the day of the Lord historically has applied to Babylon's invasion of Judah. Prophetically, it speaks of a future day of judgment that is still to come when Christ returns. And for Joel the prophet here, the day of the Lord actually, he applied it to what was happening then with the locust plague that we learned about in chapter 1. Joel saw that as, as an act of God intervening. It was a part of the day of the Lord that Joel saw. He also applies it to what was about to happen soon with the invading army in the land of Judah. And what would eventually even happen when Christ returns, prophetically speaking, way down the road. And so the day of the Lord promises both this holy justice for God's enemies, but also this hopeful joy for God's people. And so we might think of the day of the Lord this way. It is a day of justice and it is a day of joy because it delivers God's judgment to those who, who flat out reject God, but it also carries with it God's deliverance to those who embrace God, especially through His Son, Jesus Christ, for the church today. And so the coming of God is wonderful. If God's coming is to save and deliver like He did in the Exodus, which we just read about in our call to worship, But when God comes to judge in righteousness, Joel is saying we ought to tremble at that. In fact, Isaiah chapter 13, it describes the day of the Lord this way. It says, all hands will be feeble, every human heart will melt. The day the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate. And why is God coming this way? It's to judge sin. But here's the difference in Isaiah 13. It is actually against Babylon. And so if you were an Israelite, those prophecies gave you hope. Listen, God's going to come. He's going to judge our enemies. But what does it mean now for Joel to sound the alarm, not against Babylon, but against Zion? means God's people have now become no different than the pagan nations around them. And in a sense, they're no different than Babylon. Instead of consecrating themselves to God, instead of being his holy people that he called them to, a light among the nations, they have now become just like them. And so God cannot stand idly by. He must respond in righteous judgment against Israel. The day the Lord is near. So let all the people tremble. So what could the people of God expect on that day in Joel's day? What did that mean for them? Well, Joel describes this day in verses 2 through 11. First of all, we notice that the day of the Lord is a day of thick darkness. It's a day of thick darkness. Joel says in verse 2, look at it with me. He says, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now, if you were an Israelite, your mind would immediately recall the darkness that fell on Egypt when you were there as a slave in bondage. In fact, that ninth plague was darkness, and it's described as so dark that it is to be felt. It's like it just comes upon you. This darkness is also comparable to what we find later on in Amos chapter 5. There, that darkness, it isn't safe. 
In fact, Amos describes it as this way. It's one, one flees from a lion only to meet a bear. Why? Because you're in darkness. This darkness now reappears later on in chapter 2 here of Joel in verse 10, where he talks about how the sun and the moon and the stars, instead of shining their lights at night they're, or day and night, they're now dark. They become dark. And this darkness, Joel tells us, it actually becomes the context for introducing this, in the words of Joel, this, this great and powerful army that's coming against Judah. Notice how Joel describes it in verse 2. He says, like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. And so it's almost like Joel is describing the evil army of Mordor in the return of the king. And yet he seems to be describing an army that's coming against Judah. He seems to be saying that this army is so vast and numbered that they look like blackness itself. And, and so Joel is actually taking language that he used to describe the locust swarm in the same terms, and he's now using it to describe and point to this human army, which also points prophetically to this demonic army that we read about in Revelation chapter 9. And so this day, Joel tells us, first of all, it's a day of thick darkness. We also learn that the day of the Lord is a day of horrible devastation. So it's a day of darkness, and it's also a day of devastation. Joel says in verse 3, notice it. He says, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Now, this army is not out to occupy the land of Judah, but to leave behind a trail of destruction and devastation. And so just like the locust swarm, this army consumes everything in their path. The reference here to the Garden of Eden is to somewhat help us see the consequences of sin. The promised land where the, the people of Israel are living at this time, it becomes a desolate wilderness after this army passes through. And the scene here, it, it's not difficult for us to even imagine, since most of us have seen images of war on TV or social media. Uh, some of us might even think of the Japanese city of Hiroshima following the atomic bomb that was dropped at the end of World War II. Uh, in fact, the term scorched earth policy that's used to describe a warfare strategy would, would be a very fitting phrase to describe the scene here in verse 3. And so we have a day of darkness, we have a day of devastation, but most of all, number three, the day of the Lord is a day of foreboding dread, Joel tells us. In fact, notice how Joel describes the dread of this army on this day. He says in verses 4 through 5, their appearance it's like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. And so this army will strike terror across the land. There's nowhere to run. No one escapes them. And Joel continues in verses 7 through 9. He says, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. And as a result, there's this 
overwhelming feeling of fear and dread. According to verse 6, Joel says, before them peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. And according to verse 10, even the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. But what's most terrifying of all is what Joel says in verse 11. He says, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. So notice something here going on. God is no longer in the city of Zion. His presence is no longer with the people to protect them. The Lord is now outside the city and He's charging against it. And so no wonder the prophet cries out in verse 11, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Can anyone endure the day of the Lord? You see, Joel knows and the people know this God, this mighty God that had redeemed them and now is leading this army. They know his might. They know his holiness. Even the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Who can endure it, Joel asked. And that's a question that we all need to ponder here this morning. God brought judgment on Israel because of their continued sin. They didn't remain faithful to God's covenant. And now Joel says the day of the Lord is near and none of them can endure And so like Israel, listen, we too here this morning, we deserve this coming day to overwhelm us, to ruin us. We may think that we are safe and secure for the moment, but our sin, we know this from the rest of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that our sin brings judgment upon us or for a holy, righteous God. So how should we respond? to the sound of God's trumpet blast. And Joel says the first thing we need to do, we just need to tremble. We need to tremble before the God who judges righteously. But folks, don't stop there, because this same God, He also holds out hope of deliverance for those who will, number two, turn back to the God who relents in loving kindness. Turn back to the God who relents in loving kindness. Now, it is difficult to conceive of any situation darker and more hopeless than the one facing Joel at this moment and the people of God. Which is why what God says next should just utterly amaze you. Hear what he says in verse verse 12 now. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Yet even now, that phrase is beautiful. That phrase is glorious. Because it means that it is never too late, it is never too dark for God to speak a word of hope into your life. Except when, by definition, it is too late because the last trumpet has sounded. 
And so here we find the same God who commanded the locust invasion and leads this army invasion against Judah. Now, the same God, he is the one who is now taking the initiative to summon his people to turn back to him. This is astounding. And it shows us the very heart of God for his people. Yes, the Lord, make no mistake about it, he is terrifyingly holy, but he is also infinitely lovely and loving. He is loving enough to warn his people that judgment is coming and then summon them to call them, to beseech upon them to turn to him as their only hope of deliverance. Listen, this is the reason we hear another trumpet sound in this passage. We are so thankful for two trumpet sounds, not just one. Except this time, the second trumpet sound, it is to call the people together, not as a warning for war, but now to come together in worship. When Joel says in verse 15, look at it, he says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Now, why would Joel want the people to gather together in worship? Because the mercy of the Lord is here, Joel is saying. Yes, the day of the Lord is near. That's the first trumpet blast. But the second trumpet blast, the mercy of the Lord is here and it is here now. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. This is God's gracious a merciful invitation for his people to gather together to repent of sin and depend on him for deliverance from his coming judgment. That is what the second trumpet blast is a call out to. It is an invitation from God himself. Now, please, please don't miss the priority of this and the urgency of God's invitation to his people to gather together. Joel says in verse 16, look at it. He says, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. In other words, what Joel is saying in verse 16 here is that the priority is that everyone must gather together. He says, from the elderly all the way to little children, even nursing infants. In other words, nobody, Joel says, can plead that they, oh, I got something more important to do. I have something more pressing in my life that keeps them from gathering in worship. Joel says, not even newlyweds. He says, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Joel doesn't care. Basically, he's saying, Joel, Joel's saying, I don't care if you just said I do. The honeymoon must wait in this circumstance. Why? Because there's nothing more important. There's nothing more urgent than your relationship with the Lord at this moment in time. The day the Lord is near and the mercy of God is here now. As I think about this and how it kind of applies to my life today, your life now, I'm like, you know what? The application is we need God more than anything else. We need the Lord and his presence, his power, more than anything else in our lives today. More than each other, more than sex, more than happy times away, more than sports, more than work, more than money. Why? Because 
Joel is basically saying there is nothing more important and more urgent than this. The day of the Lord is near. But the mercy of the Lord is here. And Joel is imploring upon us to ponder this, that all must be certain that their hearts are completely devoted to the Lord. Why? Because there's not a more important relationship to tend to, to nurture, to cultivate, to to evaluate in your life. And this brings us to the very purpose of God's invitation for His people now to gather together in worship. And that is to repent of sin and depend on Him for deliverance from His coming judgment. This is the hope that God holds out to His people. This is why He says in verse 12, Yet even now return to Me with all your heart. And so God lovingly invites his people. He says, return to to me. God's love for his people is so abounding that the invitation is repeated a second time in verse 13 where Joel says, return to the Lord your God. And notice how Joel qualifies that. It's your God. This is not just any God. This is not a God that they never heard of. Joel says to the people, this is your God. This is the God who chose you. This is the God who delivered you out of bondage in in Egypt. This is the God who brought you to the promised land. This is the God who has done everything for you. Yes, judgment is coming because of their sin. But in loving kindness... God says, return to me. Now this this wording here, this phrase, return to me or or turning, is the most common way to talk about repentance in the Old Testament. At the core is the idea of actually turning 180 degrees toward God. So we might think of it this way. It's an about-face of turning away from sin and self and toward God for his forgiveness and restoration. Now, the problem is, for us here today, we can sometimes think that repent, it just means to stop. But repent is to turn, not just to stop. You see, turning is different than stopping. Because you can stop quote, stop sinning for a little while and still be facing the same direction with the same people with the same hard heart. Stopping sinful behavior, listen, that's important. And as parents, we need to correct that. Uh, Even as adults, that needs to be corrected in our lives. But listen, it's never enough just to stop sinning. God says we must return to him. God calls out and says, return to me. In fact, one author has described it this way, as a total reorientation toward the Lord. In other words, we are totally reorientating our lives toward God Almighty. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, here's the beautiful thing. Joel doesn't leave us guessing as to what that looks like. Joel actually describes it for us here. He tells us, first of all, notice this in your notes on the screen, that the mark of repentance is a torn heart, not torn garments. You can see the emphasis on the heart when God says in verse 12, look at it with me again, God says, return to me with what? He says, return to me with all your heart, 
with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend or tear your hearts and not your garments. And so what this implies, what God is saying to us, is that God longs for us to turn back to him with all of our hearts. Why? Because he'll settle for nothing less. But God also makes it abundantly clear that we must turn back to him, not just with all our heart, but that heart must be a broken heart. Why? Because God understands, he knows that the outward signs of repentance can be manufactured. I mean, let's, let's admit it here. We are awfully good at faking it. We're, we, we can be good at appearing on the outside to grieve over sin in order to get out of trouble, when in reality, our hearts are still very hard toward God. In fact, these words that that Joel uses here, fasting, weeping, mourning, they all describe repentance that comes from a a broken heart, a, a torn heart, not just a bent will, but a heart that's broken over our sin, broken over the damage that our sin has caused in our relationship with God as well as our relationship with one another. Rend your hearts. It's a picture of of deep-seated grief. It's the process of actually exposing your heart to the Lord. This kind of repentance, or I should say heart repentance, is echoed by King David after he was convicted of his own sin. Nathan uh, had to confront him about his sin. He's convicted about his sin. And he later writes about it in Psalm 51, 17. A a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In fact, to be honest with you, this, this is the only kind of repentance that God will accept. And it's the only kind of repentance that really works. This is why God says, rend your heart and not your garments. What does that even mean to rend your garments? Well, the the act of tearing garments in that day and age was a ritual associated with mourning when a loved one dies. Some of you might remember in Genesis, Jacob tore his garments when he thought his son Joseph had been killed. He got the report back from his brothers, and his first act is he tore his garments in mourning, in weeping, because his favored son Joseph he thought had died. And in essence, that's what's happened here with God's people in Joel. Because of sin, there's now a sort of like a, a death in the relationship between God and his people. The people are now separated from God. And the worst part is they don't seem to care about it. And so God says, he holds out hope of deliverance from his coming judgment, and he says to them, return to me, but do so with a broken heart. The reason some of us don't repent with all our heart is because we don't really see our need for God. We think we can still make it in this life apart from God. And in that sense, we're really no different than the children of Israel here in Joel's day. This is the connection to to fasting and and weeping and mourning. Listen, all three of those phrases there, they are expressions 
Uh, they're how we express our longing, our desire for God and crying out for God. God, I need you. I need you more than anything else in my life. Lord, forgive me for, for sinning against you, for rebelling against you, and restore to me the joy of my salvation. And so the mark of repentance is a torn heart. Number two, the grounds of repentance, though, is the Lord's character. The grounds for our repentance is the Lord's character. The Lord says to us, return to me with all your heart. And I, if, you know, if you are following along, logically, the next question would be, how can we be so sure of that? I mean, we ought to be thinking and asking to ourselves about now, isn't this the same God who's leading the dreadful army against his people in judgment? Didn't Joel just ask who can endure it? Won't, won't this God, won't he strike us down in wrath? So how is it even possible for us now to return to that God? Because of what Joel adds here in verse 13, look at it with me. This is beautiful. He says, return to the Lord your God. And notice, it, notice why. This is the grounds. For he is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Now, that is one of the most powerful statements of God's character in all of Scripture. God's every move toward us is rooted in his character. Make no mistake about it. It is God's character, the God who is gracious and merciful, the God who is slow to anger, the God who is abounding in steadfast love. It is this God, his character, that now gives us room to turn back to the Lord and to do so with torn hearts. Do those words sound familiar to you? Let me tell you, they certainly did to the people in Joel's day. Because they come from the Lord himself after the children of Israel turned against God in the idolatry of the golden calf. The people have just been delivered out of Egypt, and now the people make this golden calf to worship, if you can believe that. It's unfathomable. And yet God, in his righteous wrath, he now intends to wipe them out because of their sin. But Moses now intercedes for them. And he cries out to the Lord to show mercy. And you know what God does? He relents. And it's at this point that God then reveals his very character, the essence of who he is to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression in sin. And so what Joel's doing here by rehearsing what God said to Moses and rehearsing it for the people now, Joel's reminding the people then and he's reminding us even today that the whole reason that we can return to the Lord, that we can repent is because of the Lord's character. In other words, it's not based on who we are. It's not based on us and what we do for God. It is based on God and God alone. This hope for a renewed relationship with the Lord is based on who He is. Remember, He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love for His people. And that means there is hope for sinners like us today. Woohoo! 
Joel says. Return to the Lord your God. He says, listen, you can trust him even if you don't deserve his mercy. Return to him. Listen, he's your God and he is moved to relent with loving kindness. Joel believes this about God. He believes, in fact, that God even has a blessing for his people if, if, if they will return to the Lord. But Joel cannot be absolutely sure about this, and therefore he says in verse 14, look at it, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Who knows? That little question there reflects a a very humble dependence on God's grace by Joel. In other words, this is Joel's way of saying, God is not bound to show us mercy. And if he doesn't, God would still be just and righteous. God himself reminds us in Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8, he says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And so it is based on God's history with his people, based on God's steadfast love to his people, Joel is saying here, perhaps, perhaps he will act again in mercy and grace. Perhaps our repentance will move in God's heart in such a way that he will relent of his wrath and even leave a blessing. You say, what is this, quote, blessing? Oh, it's the blessing of worshiping the Lord in a right relationship with Him. It's the blessing of knowing God and being completely satisfied in Him. Remember what the locust plague did. It had cut off the temple offerings. It had left the people without any resources to worship the Lord. But Joel's hope here is that the Lord will restore this blessing of joyful worship in their lives. Now, this forces us to ask a question about what we count as blessings today. What we count as a true blessing. So many times we just count blessings as material possessions. Lord, bless me. I got a new car. I got an old car, but it's new to me. And those are blessings but so many times our focus on blessings is just the temporary, it's the temporal, it's, it's the material. And it forces us to really evaluate what is a true blessing. Do we find true gladness in the Lord himself? Because the Lord's done a work in our heart. And we want to worship him. We want to gather with his people. That's the blessing that God is restoring here. And all of this comes on the assurance It is the Lord's name and glory. The assurance of God accepting our repentance is the Lord's name and glory. The people are gathered now together in worship. And Joel calls now on the priests, the leaders, the spiritual leaders in Joel's day to recognize the seriousness of God's coming judgment and to pray as they never prayed before. 
Notice Joel's instructions in verse 17. He lays out where they're to be, where they're to stand between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, and here's what they are to pray. Joel tells them what to pray. Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And so their prayer begins with this cry for God's mercy. Spare your people, O Lord. That's mercy that they're asking for. There's this acknowledgement that God has already released his judgment, and justly so, but in mercy, God might forgive them and relent of his wrath. There's no trace of presumption here whatsoever. Rather, there is the mood of the prophet Zephaniah when he urged the people to gather together in Zephaniah 2.3 when he says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord's wrath. And so having leaned in now on the mercy of God, the priests now plead on the basis of God's name and glory among the nations. They pray something like this. Make not your heritage a reproach, Lord, a byword among the nations. You see, they understand that God's glory, although it is not dependent upon it, it is closely linked to the welfare of his people. And so they humbly pose the question before God. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Is he not present? Does he not care about his own people? This is the same prayer that King Hezekiah prayed when he was being attacked by the Assyrian army. He cries out to the Lord in Isaiah 37, 20, Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. And so understand this. Neither King Hezekiah nor Joel and the priests, they are not pleading with God based on how good they are. They are, they are literally... They're throwing themselves on the mercy of God. And in the same breath, they are appealing to God's zeal to guard his own name and to bring glory to himself by answering this prayer. Now, we'll have to see in a couple weeks how God answers this prayer. But for now, we need to just stop and ask the question as we come to the conclusion here. What does all this mean for us today? I think the first obvious thing this means, just loud and clear, hear the alarm that God is still sounding today. Remember last week we said, through the prophet Joel, God still speaks today. God is sounding the alarm, and we need to hear the alarm loud and clear. So hear the very first trumpet blast. The day the Lord is near, this is God's warning that judgment is coming. And then we need to hear the second trumpet blast. The mercy of the Lord is here. This is God's invitation to turn to Him for deliverance. Folks, please listen to me. The day of the Lord is still coming when Jesus Christ returns. And the question everyone here needs to consider is, are you ready for that day? Are you prepared for that coming day? The coming day of the Lord, it should lead us, it should compel us, motivate us 
to turn to His Son, Jesus Christ, in repentance of sin and dependence on Him for our salvation. And this salvation from God's judgment, it is found only in His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, the hope that God holds out in Joel 2, He brings to fulfillment in the life and death of His Son, Jesus Christ. So if we hear God's warning about the day of the Lord, then make a beeline for the hope that God extends to us in Jesus Christ. The Bible assures us that if we turn to Jesus in saving faith, He has borne our judgment when He died on the cross. And we will be delivered on the day of the Lord. This hope of salvation, it is made very clear later on in the book of Joel in chapter 2, verse 32, where it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in case we miss it in Joel, the Apostle Paul repeats this hope of salvation in Romans 10, verse 13, where he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you ready for the coming day? This is the hope that God holds out to us, and that hope is found in none other than Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who was slain for you on the cross and resurrected and is now ascended to the heavens where he sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting to return to gather his church. And the question is, are you a part of that? Are you ready for it? Because it is coming. With your heads bowed. Man, if God is speaking to you, if the Holy Spirit is pricking at your heart, now is the time to respond. We're going to take just a moment here for you to respond in prayer. And if you are ready to do that and ask God to save you, through a repentant heart and a dependence on Him, I encourage you to pray a prayer something like this. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I need Your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus is the Savior who died to pay the penalty for my sin and rose again. I want to turn from my sins and follow You instead. Please forgive me and save me. I receive Your Son, Jesus, by faith as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you unworthy, and yet because of your Son, we can plead on your behalf. May we tremble before you, and yet at the same time know that there is hope in you when we turn to you. And so let us now do that. Let us turn to you in repentance of sin and dependence on you. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for trying to make it in this life all on our own apart from you. And help us to see that we need you now more than ever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.